Leon Morris once wrote, the church was never meant to be a cozy club of like-minded people of one race or social position or intellectual caliber. Christians are not clones, identical in all respects. One of the difficulties the church has always faced is that included in its membership are the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, those from every stratum of society, the old and the young, adults and children, the conservatives and the radicals. People from a great number of nations are Christians and people of every temperament. This is a wonderful thing about the church and most of us have thrilled at some time at the cont uh, contemplation of the rich variety in our brothers and sisters in Christ. But this very variety puts strains on us all. Just to be clear, the reason the church is made up of so many different kinds of people from so many different backgrounds and social standings and ethnic diversities, individual worldviews and cultural varieties is because God wanted it that way. Right? It's not as if there's one particular type of person outside of Jesus that makes the best Christian and everyone else needs to try and be more like that, whatever that is. Right? No, God is the one who made us all very different, and yet we're all made in his image, meant to be a reflection of him, which not only says a lot about us, it also says a lot about God. Because that other believer that you don't care so much for, the one you'd rather not be around, that you wish would find another church or another friend group or maybe live in another country, they bear the image of God just as much as you do. And so it's really important that we not only understand that, but we learn to embrace that because first of all, you're going to spend all of eternity together. And as we saw last week in, in John's uh, vision in Revelation 7, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worship God, Revelation 7, 9 through 11. See, as, as different as we all are, we're still one church, one body, one family of believers worldwide with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Like it or not, we're one. We belong to each other, differences and all. And so at the end of the day, all of us Christians with all of our differences are going to worship the same God together for all of eternity. And yet that doesn't have to wait until heaven. No, that's the way it's supposed to be now on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, even though we don't agree on everything. That's right. Even though we may never iron out all of our differences this side of heaven, we are one when we worship Christ together. Not separated and never shrinking, cloistered groups of people until all that's left are those who are exactly like us in every possible way. In fact, that kind of exclusionist thinking will ultimately land you worshiping alone because no one else will ever be enough like you for you to remain in fellowship with. Happens all the time, by the way. Uh, people leave the local church to worship with a smaller group of more like-minded believers and I've had quite a few friends over the years who've done this over and over again until they end up having Bible studies with their family once a week and nobody else because 
there are always differences. There are always disagreements. We, we never see eye to eye on everything, and there are people who can't handle that. They refuse to tolerate other believers who don't agree with them or look like them or act like them or think like them until ultimately they end up worshiping alone. Well, have you ever thought about the fact that heaven is full of people who are very different? Okay, when you go to heaven, we, uh, contrary to popular belief, we don't sprout wings and float around in the clouds playing a harp all day. No, we were created in the image of God and he created us with all of our differences as a representation of him in this world. That's how varied God is. He's as multifaceted as the nearly eight billion people on this planet. And so obviously we're supposed to be different, which means whether you like it or not, if you're a Christian, you're going to spend eternity worshiping Jesus with billions of people who are nothing like you. Yet again, that's how it's supposed to be, even now. Because when we gather here on earth with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, differences and all, and worship God together, we're not only worshiping him on earth as it is in heaven, but that's also where his presence abides. And that is why all of this matters as much as it does. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them, Matthew 18, 20. This is why it's so important that we embrace our oneness with each other now because the same presence of God that we will see in John's vision today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Revelation, the same powerful presence of God that we'll see today dwelling in the midst of the worship of all believers in heaven is the same presence of God that we can experience here on earth when we worship him as one today. See, it's not just about learning to get along with each other so that we can stand to be in each other's presence. No, it's about learning to set aside our own pride and selfishness and arrogance and differences and preferences when we worship together so that we can experience his presence in the same power and glory that John describes in the very beginning of this vision back in chapter four where he saw flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder coming from the throne of God as the people of God worshiped him together as one. Listen, even when we don't feel like it, even when we know the sins of the person standing next to us, even when the weight of our circumstances is more than we can bear, we are called to worship Jesus with our brothers and sisters in Christ, not because of how we feel about ourselves or about them, but because of who he is. The problem is we often express our worship according to our mood at any given moment. And so we worship and give thanks when something great happens. We worship and give thanks when life is going our way. We worship and give thanks when it feels right, when we, can, uh, we connect well with the people around us. But what about when nothing feels right? Do you worship him then? What about when your life seems like it's falling apart? Do you worship him then? What, what about when you're suffering? Do you worship him then or when you feel betrayed? by those closest to you? Do you worship him then? Or when you don't care for the people around you all that much, do you worship him then? Because that's what Jesus did. And he always did it with others. Not because of his rosy circumstances or their undying loyalty, but because he loved the Father and wanted to please him even in the midst of his own suffering and betrayal by those closest to him. You see, we worship because it pleases God. Whether or not it pleases us is irrelevant. 
Yet again, there is something truly extraordinary to be gained when we worship God together with other believers. Psalm 22 uh, prophetically describes the crucifixion. In fact, Jesus quotes that psalm while hanging on the cross, and yet right in the midst of the worst suffering imaginable, verse three of that psalm says, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and when you read that in the ancient Hebrew, the word enthroned is the Hebrew word yashab, it means to inhabit, to dwell in. In other words, when God's people worship him together, even in the midst of our deepest suffering and struggles with each other, just like Jesus did, God is especially present because he inhabits our corporate worship. He inhabits the praises of his people. And so when we worship together, he dwells in our worship in a special and an especially powerful way. It's not just singing together, by the way. It's every part of our life that we offer to God in a way that brings glory to him. The Apostle Paul said it this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual service of worship, Romans 12, 1. And when he says present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's not just talking about our physical bodies. No, he's talking about our entire being, every part of who we are and how we live. And so much like... Holy Communion, which we're sharing in today, there is something uniquely effectual and powerful when God's people gather together and glorify God together as one. In fact, I believe that is what strengthened Jesus after the Passover meal to carry on with what he knew he was called to do because as they communed together and sang hymns to the Father, he inhabited their praises. This is why it's so profoundly important that we never lose sight of why it is that we gather on Sunday mornings. It's not to hear some good music. It's not to hear some good preaching. It's not to help out the church with some money in the offering. It's not to do our good deed for the week by serving in the ministry. No, we gather to worship together as one body. We sing together as one. We study together as one. We fellowship together as one. We give together as one. We serve together as one. And in the midst of that corporate worship gathered together as one, the presence and power of God dwells among us in a way that is remarkably different than when we're alone. This is what Paul says matters more than our differences. When we commune with Christ and worship him together as one because it is then that we are infused with the power of his presence in ways that are otherwise unattainable. As we discussed last week, me and Jesus simply isn't all there is. People tell me all the time, I'm not so much down with the organized church, the local church, but I'm good with Jesus. Well, if you're not good with the church, you're not good with Jesus. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. Those two positions are incompatible, incongruent. Jesus died for the church. Just think about what happened when Paul and Silas decided to worship God together while they were chained up in prison. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened, Acts 16, 25, and 26. There is so much power in our worship when we worship together as one. And so listen, if you're in the midst of some truly difficult circumstances today and you need the power of God to work in those circumstances, I have the answer for you. Gather with other believers and worship him together. 
If there's a relationship in your life that's falling apart right now and it's only the power of God that can save it, then your answer is to gather with other believers and worship him together. If you need strength to get through an impossible obstacle in your life, strength that can only come from God, listen, the answer is to gather with other believers, differences and all, and worship him together. And listen, it, as strange as that may sound as a remedy for what is afflicting you, just keep in mind, that is exactly what Jesus did. In his darkest hour, knowing he was going to his death, and that by crucifixion on a Roman cross, what he did to gain the strength and clarity and resolve to get through it was to gather with his followers and commune with them as they worshiped God together as one. They shared in the Lord's table and they sang hymns together and later prayed. Why? Because that is where the power of God's presence resides, not in perfect agreement with one another. Remember, Judas was there, and his heart was set against Jesus. Peter, just hours later, would deny Jesus three times, and the rest of the disciples would abandon him. And yet he worshiped with them together intentionally. The power of God inhabited their praises, and as a result, Jesus was strengthened for the hour to come. You see how important it is? that we come together and worship as one, differences and all. Let's pick the story up then where we left off last time and finish the second part of this sermon that we began last week and see how the power of God is manifest in the presence of God in our lives when we worship him as one body. Revelation 7, we'll start at verse 13 and read to the end of the chapter. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. As mentioned earlier in the first part of this chapter, John saw the people of God around the throne worshiping God and they were clothed in white robes. And so as we open this part of the chapter, one of the elders addressing John says, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. He was addressing John. John says, "Is verse 13 and verse 13. He wasn't uh, asking John the question because he didn't know the answer. Uh, for what it's worth, that was a common format. The question and answer format was often used in prophetic literature in antiquity for the purpose of introducing the explanation of a vision. We see that, for instance, in uh, Zechariah's vision of the golden lampstand and the two olive trees where an angel poses the question, do you not know what these are? Uh, Zechariah 4, 5, and when the prophet admits his lack of understanding, the angel proceeds to explain the visions. And so the elder in John's vision here was simply anticipating the question that John was about to ask and then answers uh, his own question when John cannot. And he explains that the white-robed multitude are those who have come out of the great tribulation. And there are a lot of people uh, who assume that these are all martyrs. Actually, there's no evidence here to support that. There's no mention of these people being slain, as we see back in chapter 6, verse 9, or of being beheaded, as we will see in chapter 20, verse 4, for the testimony they bore 
to Christ. No, their robes are white by virtue of the redemptive death of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And so the rewards described here in verses 15 through 17, which by the way is a hymn, if it looks like it's written different in your Bible, that's a hymn. So these uh, rewards are being sung about as a worship song praise and worship God around the throne, right? These are the rewards of all the faithful followers of Christ, including those coming out of that specific period of distress and terrible persecution which will take place prior to the return of Christ. Upon the opening of the first five scrolls, otherwise known as the wrath of men, being poured out on the earth, which we are promised to experience by Jesus and all the other biblical writers, as opposed to the wrath of God, which is poured out on the earth upon the opening of the, the sixth scroll, which we are promised by Jesus to be spared from, the wrath of God, after the church is then called home, as we uh, covered in detail. Uh, we've covered all that in the past few weeks. So if you haven't heard those messages and you wanna understand that better, go back and listen to them. Uh, these are rewards here that include the promise that we shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, which of course, refers to as Robert Mounts puts it, that ultimate satisfaction of the soul's deepest longing for spiritual wholeness, which is true, and yet it would have also, that statement would have been especially meaningful to first century believers who heard it in the physical sense, in the material sense, because for them both hunger and thirst were very real, uh, almost constant threats. Uh, the point being, there are both spiritual and material rewards for all believers to the ones who conquer, as Jesus puts it over and over again in the letters to the churches back in chapters two and three. Those who remain faithful to the end just before the wrath of God is poured out on the earth and the church is called home to be with the Lord and with each other, all together as one as he intended from the very beginning. And more to the point at hand, what we find at the center of this oneness here in John's vision, what unites all believers worldwide is the same thing that is at the center of our oneness today. In fact, uh, if we are to be unified as the body of Christ, it is the only thing that can and ever will truly unite the church on earth as it is in heaven, which of course is Jesus Christ alone. And so the first point in our outline from last week was that the church is one when we are together, and the second point today is that the church is one in Christ because the church is unified in Christ alone. Please hear me. We're unified in Christ alone. The only thing that unifies the church is Jesus Christ, not a political party or a government or a nation or a tribe or a tongue or a tradition. Listen, not even in a particular doctrine. No, the church is one in Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. We are unified, we become one in Jesus Christ alone. That's it, full stop. The problem for a lot of Christians today and a part of the reason the church is so divided is because first of all, we're trying to be unified under just about everything but Christ. We try to rally one another under a political party or a political ideology or a particular religious tradition or on one side of the culture wars or the other or listen, even under a specific set of doctrines. Now, hear me and those of you who attend here regularly know this already about me. I'm not talking about pluralism, this idea that all paths lead to heaven. No, there's only one true gospel. In fact, uh, there are a lot of people today 
who accept just about everything except what the Bible teaches, and yet they call themselves Christians. That's not what I'm talking about here, okay? Jesus and his apostles were clear about people who claimed to be followers of Christ while rejecting his, his very teachings. Those are false teachers, false believers who lead people away from Christ and his gospel. That's not who we're talking about here. I am referring to true believers and followers of Christ who differ on how they interpret specific doctrines within the scriptures. Because the truth is, there are certain interpretations within those same scriptures that God-fearing, God-loving, faithful followers of Christ disagree on. And guess what? That's okay as long as we don't divide his church over it. Because it is not our doctrine that unites us. Let me give you an example. Within the evangelical church in the West, you can basically categorize the entire church world into two groups, at least on this one particular doctrine. There are those who believe that you can be a genuine born-again Christian, and yet over time, and through a series of bad decisions leading to willful sin, you can backslide to the point of losing your salvation. On the other side are those who believe that our sin cannot overcome what Christ did for us on the cross, and therefore we are secure in our salvation. It's called eternal security, or once saved, always saved. Let me tell you something, that one issue alone, that one doctrine, has divided more churches than I can count in just my lifetime. Now, is that an important issue? It certainly is. Should we discuss it, even debate it? Absolutely. That's how we learn and grow and mature in our discipleship. Should we allow it to divide the church? Absolutely not. Okay, I want you to think about it this way, and this is a real life example, although I've changed the names to protect the guilty. <clears throat> Jim was a member of the church, a middle-aged man who by all accounts was a model Christian. Jim was a deacon in the church, he was involved in numerous ministries, he was married to a wonderful woman and had an amazing family who were all heavily invested in the church. Jim taught a men's Bible study, led a community group, discipled countless young men over the years, and led many, many people to Christ. There was an abundance of undeniable spiritual fruit being produced through Jim's life and ministry for decades. That is until Jim reconnected with his old high school sweetheart. And over a period of time and a series of bad decisions leading to open sin, Jim ultimately left his wife and kids, had an affair, divorced his wife, married his old flame, and to this day is living in open adultery, unrepentant, claiming to still love and serve God with God's blessing. The problem for Jim is, according to the teachings of Jesus himself, Jim is not a Christian, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a believer who actually reads their Bible who would say that he was. Remember, there's been no repentance, right, by Jim's own admission to this day. So is there forgiveness available to Jim? Certainly there is. But so far, Jim has rejected his own need for forgiveness or repentance. Now, if you go to the person who believes you can lose your salvation and ask them what happened to Jim, they will tell you that Jim backslid to the point that Jim is now lost without Christ. Whereas if you ask the person who believes in eternal security what happened to Jim, they will tell you that Jim was never actually saved at all, and as such, he remains lost without Christ. But here's the part that really matters. Because if you go to the person who believes you can lose your salvation and ask them, what does Jim need to do now? They will tell you Jim needs to repent of his sin and come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And if you go to the person who believes in eternal security and ask them, what does Jim need to do now? They will tell you Jim needs to repent of his sin and come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. The prescription is exactly the same. Why? Because we all agree that lost people need Jesus. And I'm telling you, if the church would spend more time focusing on the fact that lost people need Jesus and less time worrying about how they became lost to begin with, we'd be much more effective in reaching lost people for Christ. happens to be the whole reason the church exists, by the way. So look, I'm not saying that doctrinal positions don't matter. I'm saying they don't matter the most. And they certainly aren't worth dividing the church over. Jesus Christ is the only thing that can ever truly unify us because everything else we ever try to be unified under is temporary at best. We are one church in Christ. But again, we don't, we don't always act like it because first of all, we try to unify under the wrong things and secondly, because we're all so different and it's hard sometimes to accept that we can actually be one with people who are so much different than us in large part because we don't understand those differences. But listen, we're, we're unified in Christ, not in our similarities. And still, it's a lot easier to judge someone else for their differences than it is to try and understand those differences. And so we divide and separate ourselves into more like-minded groups of people and in the process. And this is the part that really matters. We miss out on the power that is available to us when we learn to worship God together, differences and all, because that's where his presence abides most powerfully. John says, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence as he abides in the praises of his people. And it is then that his presence is manifest among us in power and glory. And so just imagine if everyone knew everyone else's problems, what if we all, we all knew each other's hangups and fears and struggles and failures? And still knowing all of that, we made the decision to love one another anyway because deep down we know that none of us is right about everything anyway. Meaning you're going to love other people no matter how messed up they are, and those other people are going to love you back no matter how messed up you are. First of all, we would all probably understand grace, what God has actually done for us in a much deeper way than many of us do now. Secondly, we would all probably be a lot more humble toward one another than most people are today. And thirdly, we would all probably be much closer to one another than we are even now because the strongest and healthiest relationships are always between believers who understand the grace that has been afforded to them first, which again is very humbling when you understand that Jesus loved you the most when you were at your worst. It replaces uh, skepticism toward other people with gratitude. When we can look past our differences and realize that our needs are the same, right? Human culture constantly changes. Human nature never changes. Our needs are the same as they have been since Adam and Eve walked in the garden. Without Christ, we are all wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, according to Jesus in Revelation 3.17. But with Christ, we become one. One body, one family, one people, one church. The Apostle Paul said, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Romans 1, 4, and 5. 
which is why people from so many different cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities and worldviews and perspectives are able to worship the same God together despite our differences and affirm one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And listen, that's when his presence is manifest among us most powerfully. That's what makes the church so strong because it's made up of people from all over the world with all our differences and unique talents and gifts and strengths coming together to form a united body. It's how it's supposed to be. Because we're not unified by politics or social standing or how much money we make or our career field or sports teams or hobbies or any other personal preferences. Go Clemson. (laughs) We're unified. (laughs) Look, what unifies us is Jesus Christ. I mean, that's it. We're not just talking about, uh, by the way, about tolerating other Christians who are different than you. No, we're talking about choosing to worship with and value other people and their differences because whether you like it or not or want to admit it or not, God's presence is manifest among us most powerfully when we're together serving and worshiping him together, differences and all. John MacArthur once said, believers all belong to the same Lord and are thus one with each other. Therefore, anything that denies our oneness with each other denies our oneness with him. Okay, there's a power available to us when we are together in the presence of Christ that is unattainable any other way. And so every time we gather to worship him together with all of our hangups and failures and flaws, you can take it to the bank. He's there among us. Remember what Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I among them. So first of all, it's not about us. It's about him. When we gather in his name, not ours, and we worship him, we focus on what he wants, not what we want. That's when he promises to inhabit our praise when we're together as one family, one body, one church. And listen, when we do that, the power of his presence is manifest among us. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we embrace one another, differences and all, because that's where God does his best work in us and through us when we're united as one body, one family, one church, worshiping him together. So look, uh, maybe you're in a bad place today. I don't know. Maybe you're in a tight spot. Maybe you're facing something really big, really heavy, and you're not sure what to do or how you're going to overcome it. I get it. I get it, sometimes life bears down on you and there's no obvious solution in sight. I understand, but listen, as good as it can be to go into your prayer closet and seek God for answers, for clarity, for resolution, for strength to get through it, for power to overcome it, as good as that can be, and that is good to do, but I'm telling you it doesn't hold a candle to gathering with other believers and praying together and worshiping together as one because that's where the presence of God resides most powerfully. Which is exactly why when Jesus was about to face his own crucifixion, he chose at the Last Supper to worship, to sing hymns of praise with his disciples, not alone. It's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, when facing imminent death, he took his disciples with him and said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Matthew 26, 38, it's why when he prayed just before he was arrested and beaten and hung on a cross, he told his disciples to watch and pray as well. 
Because the power to affect change, to bring clarity, resolution, strength, healing, provision, direction, all the things we all need at times in our lives is at work among us most powerfully when we are together, united in Christ as one, differences and all. Let's pray.